0: listening to the Northside Christian Church sermon podcast. These teachings are recorded at our weekly Sunday morning gatherings in Springfield, Missouri. For more about our church, service times, and how to connect, visit northsidechristianchurch.net Well, Northside, I just want to re- emphasize, reiterate what John was just sharing with us in next steps. And that is that I I just want to ask that you would set a reminder on your phone, put it in your calendar for tomorrow to pray for our senior high students at camp beginning today. They're going to be heading out to camp. And I'm just telling you, June, this June, we should send over 500 uh, campers and parents and volunteers to Maranatha, where we're praying that God brings life change and transformation, where God moves in a powerful way, and you can be a part of that by praying. Uh, God uses prayer. He responds to it, and I just want to ask that you would pray for our students this week. Pray God moves powerfully in their hearts. I'm excited about it. In fact, I'm going to camp too. I'm leaving today with our high school group. We'll be at camp all week. My son Nathan is leading worship, and he asked if I would play keyboard. I'm coming out out of 15 years of rustiness. I'm coming back to play, which I'm excited about, looking forward to. Going to teach a couple workshops. And uh, we got over over 130-some high school kids signed up for camp that's leaving today. And, so, and those workers, I'm telling you, our youth team has put so much work preparing for this week of camp. Can we just appreciate them? Maybe they'll hear us over there in that high school space today. Just grateful for them. Praise God for them. So we're excited about that today. And, uh, and I'll tell you something else I'm excited about today. Uh, my dad turned, 70, turned 75 today. And he's right back there, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Rick Bushnell. 75 years. And uh, just I, I greatly respect him and I'm proud of him. And glad uh, my parents could be with us today as well. Have you ever looked at images of Earth from the Hubble Space Telescope. Have you ever seen these images, these pictures? It's just amazing. Oftentimes, when you look from that perspective, that, that telescope orbits our Earth at about 340 miles above the Earth. And you look at our planet from that perspective, it is breathtaking. Breathtaking to see the images of our planet, to see the vibrant colors of of blue and green and white and brown uh, from space. It's just incredible. When you see it just looking so peacefully, suspended there in space, it looks calm, it looks peaceful, sustaining life. It's just one of those images that just kind of takes your breath away. But if you zoom in, And you come in closer and closer still. You don't just see beauty. You see brokenness. In fact, if you zoom in close enough, and from that image, you go into a place like Uvalde, Texas, where right now there is a community and families that are just reeling in their grief. Now a nation who is just, appalled at what we heard when just five days ago, kids who were just in their classroom learning, those children, 19 of them now dead, two adults, two teachers killed, and you just let it sit there a while. You can't help but see the pain and the brokenness. And Then after you sit there for a little while, if you step back, And then you zoom in about 1,700 miles away and you go to Buffalo, New York. And there in Buffalo, New York York, where just 15 days ago, 10 people were killed at the top supermarket in what appears to be a hate crime. And then you you just let it rest and sit there for a while. Your heart is disturbed. Grief overwhelms you. And then if you step back and and then you zoom in to Laguna Woods, California. We're there in that church. One was killed, five others wounded. And what appears to be a different kind of hate crime in a small church. And then you let it just sit there for a while with what you see. And then you step back. And you come back to where you are right here, right now. In Springfield, Missouri. And you look at our greater Springfield area. And you begin to zoom in closer to the verbal abuse, the physical abuse that is on the rise. And when you look in our community and you see that children have been identified by the reports as the most vulnerable in our community, and you see children neglected, you see addiction enslaving more and more people, you see violence on the rise and sex trafficking increasing and stealing and the crimes around. In fact, just this week, I was just sitting in my office. In fact, I was working on this message. And Alan Tiger, our college life minister, just outside my door says... He just took the packages off my porch and he's looking at his phone where he's watching his camera th- from his doorbell as a guy about five minutes or so after the UPS driver drove by came and grabbed his packages that contained the sunglasses for their little girl, Essie, because they're going to go on vacation. And so they got her some sunglasses. It included the sunscreen that's actually designed for her skin, which is way darker than my skin. All of it was for her. And this guy takes it off the porch and they find the packaging along the road, the farm road, farm road 127, Melville Road, but all of the things that they ordered for her gone. When you just zoom in closer to what's happening, we're just sickened by it. We're, we're, we're so done with it. And you just start asking questions the more and more you see it. Questions like, why? Why is there so much oppression? Why all, the, why all the injustice? Why do evil people prosper? Why do the righteous suffer? Why doesn't God do something? Why doesn't God clean up this mess? Turmoil, tragedy, trauma, trials, tension. It just leads you to ask this why question over and over. Just like God's prophet Habakkuk, who was facing increasing injustice, asked the why question. He cries out to God and just asks why. In fact, he has two complaints against God he brings up with God. He brings up one complaint, and then when God answers that one, then it leads to a second complaint. And the first complaint of Habakkuk, the prophet, who was asking why, because of the injustice of his day, begins in Habakkuk chapter 1, one through 1-4. We've been reading this as we've gone through our Bible engagement this year as a church, as we've been reading through the Bible. And here in Habakkuk, chapter 1, the prophecy that Habakkuk the prophet received... How long, Lord? How long must I call for help? But you do not listen or cry out to you. Violence, but you do not save. Two different words here. Call. He calls out to God. And then he cries. Cries means to scream, to shout it out with a disturbed heart. That's what it means. Has there not been some of that in the past week or two in our nation? Crying out, calling out to God. He says, why? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction, violence are before me. There's strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed. Not just the law of the land, God's law. It's paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked, him and the righteous, so that justice is perverted. We've, we've called this sermon God's justice question. We've been in this series through the prophets looking at, at how often God talks about justice and injustice and all these things. And here he is asking God some why questions because of all the injustice that's around him. Violence, injustice, strife, conflict. It's growing. And it, it appears to Habakkuk like God is not doing anything. And so here's his complaint. The first complaint of the prophet Habakkuk. Why do you allow evil to go unchecked? And how long will you permit it? Why do you allow evil to go unchecked? And how long are you going to permit it? When it happens to you, when it comes to someone in your life, when you see it up close and personal, you can't help but ask the question, why do you allow it and how long will you permit it? Habakkuk is writing at a time when the evil king Jehoiakim is on his throne. In fact, Jeremiah 22 tells us a little bit about Jehoiakim, this wicked, ungodly, rebellious king who oppresses his people. He made them work without pay. He was full of violence and greed. He perverts justice. God's law is despised. In fact, when Habakkuk says your law is paralyzed, what he means is it's not being used. It's not being put into effect. In fact, Jehoiakim wouldn't In fact, you you read about this in Jeremiah 36, whenever the prophet Jeremiah, the scroll is being read as he's warning Jehoiakim and the leaders and the people. uh, And and Jehoiakim, as he listens to the scroll being read, every three or four columns he takes out a knife and he cuts it and he throws it into a fire and just burns it until the entire scroll is burned up. And neither Jehoiakim or his leaders or the rulers are bothered by this at all. They don't care what God says. They're not going to listen to God's word. It is despised. God's law is despised. And so Jehoiakim and the leaders, they're not doing anything about the injustices of their land. They're not acting. They're not responding. Habakkuk's sick of it. But then there's another thing that's bothering him to his core is it appears to Habakkuk like God isn't doing anything either. He's not doing anything. Evil nation. He's rising up against evil nation. It's a time of international uncertainty and crisis. Maybe that sounds like today. And he's trying to believe that God is good and believe it when there's tragedy and evil in the world. And, and God answers Habakkuk. And God's answer is, I am doing something about it. In fact, here's what he says in verses 5 through 11. He says, look at the nations and watch and be utterly Amazed. For I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. I'm raising up the Babylonians. That ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are a feared and dreaded people. They're a law to themselves and promote their own honor. Their horses are swifter than leopards, fiercer than wolves at dusk. Their cavalry gallops headlong. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an evil swooping to devour. They they come intent on violence. Their hordes advance like a desert wind and gather prisoners like sand. They mock kings, scoff at rulers. They laugh at all fortified cities by building earthen ramps. They capture them. Then they sweep past like the wind and go on guilty people whose own strength is their God. Be utterly amazed, God says, at the political elements that are happening. Because this Babylonian people is conquering Assyria. They're going to conquer the Egyptians. They're coming for Judah. They're going to bring my justice. They are going to do something about this. They're coming for you. King Jehoiakim will be dragged off in chains to Babylon for his injustices. And Habakkuk is shocked and surprised and perplexed. Not so much that God's going to discipline his people. Habakkuk was desiring that, wanting that. But shocked that he would use the Babylonians to do it. They're worse than we are. That's Habakkuk's complete. The Babylonians are worse than we are. Why, God? Why would you do such a thing? Why would you take an evil nation like the Babylonians who are even worse than we are to punish us? That doesn't make sense. Why would you do that? They're ruthless. They're impetuous. It means forceful without thought or care. God says their horses are swifter than leopards, fiercer than wolves at dusk. They'll pounce on their prey with ferocious speed. They'll gather prisoners like sand, so much you can't even count it, so numerous in number. They'll be scoffing and laughing at their enemies, the Babylonians will. So Habakkuk says this, Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, you will never die You, Lord, have appointed them to execute judgment. You, my rock, have adorned them to punish. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? And here's the question Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? You've made people like the fish in the sea, like sea creatures that have no ruler. The wicked foe pulls all of them up with hooks. He catches them in his net. He gathers them up in his dragnet. And so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and burns incense to his dragnet. For by his net, he lives in luxury and enjoys the choicest food. He, is, he, is he to keep on emptying his net, destroying nations without mercy? In other words, here's the second complaint of Habakkuk to God. Why would you use an evil power to punish a less wicked people? God, why would you do this? It just doesn't make sense to me. Babylon is more corrupt than Israel. So why, God, would you punish us with them? The Babylonians, they're already crushing the Assyrians and the Egyptians. And and they're treating people like animals to build their own empire. How can you, a holy, good God... Use a corrupt nation as instruments in history. How could you do this? He's concerned because in verse 15, Habakkuk says, like a net, they're just going to gather up the fish like they're little animals and collect them. And then they're going to empty their net and they're going to go and gather more. Why? Because they're greedy. They're never satisfied. They want more territory. They want more people. They want more power. So God, why would you use them? That's the question. Why would you use them when we're better than them? And here's what I would say as I step back for just a moment with these questions, just ask this. What was God's intent? What was his reason for bringing the Babylonians to punish his own people, Israel? Now, in this specific case, Judah, the the southern kingdom. Why would God do this? Was it not because he wanted to bring them back? Was it not because they were headed on a fast trajectory to become just like the Babylonians? I mean, were they not Worshiping idols and sacrificing their children to false gods. Were they not doing evil just like the Babylonians and on a fast track to becoming just like them? God's intent was to to bring them up, to awaken them, to bring a spiritual awakening to their lives. And I think this is the point that they were God's people. And yet they were acting like the nations around them. You know, in Hosea 13, which was written prior to this, to the northern kingdom, to Israel... It reveals how God had saved Israel from Egypt and delivered them through the Red Sea and how he had provided for them and protected them and made them his own people. And he was their God and he was going to redeem them and take them into the promised land and give them a hope and a future. These were God's people. And yet they rebelled against him and they rejected him. So that by the end of Hosea 13, he's, he's calling for their punishment. I just want you to consider this. Is Israel, in this case, Judah... Are they not more wrong? Is it not more evil to know God, to have a relationship with God, to be God's people, and yet turn your back on him and reject him? What is more evil since we're asking the question? Think about what Jesus said in, in Matthew eleven twenty 20 through 24, when Jesus was denouncing the towns where he had performed all these miracles and they would not respond to the miracles. Jesus said this in, in Matthew 11, 20, 24. Then Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. In other words, places that have been destroyed because of their wickedness, had I performed these miracles there, they would have repented. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, another place where destruction came because of the the greatness of their sin, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. If you know God, have God, belong to God, and you choose to rebel against him, are you not guilty of a greater sin? If you choose not to believe even after having Jesus perform all of these miracles that he performed, are you not guilty of a greater sin? And I would propose, are we, here in the 21st century, living in this day and age in which we live, in which we have the complete scriptures available to us, where we have more fulfillment of prophecy available for us to read and see than, at any, than any other person in the history of the world, those of us who have seen God's plan carried out in the person of Jesus and, his, and know that he died and rose again and ascended into heaven, are we perhaps not even more guilty than the people that Jesus is talking to who saw him perform the miracles that he performed because of what we have in our hands today. In Romans chapter one, Paul talks about how the Gentiles, they don't know God. And in chapter two about the Jews, how even they though they knew God, we're not righteous. And then in chapter 3, how we, the Christians, we have Jesus, but we're not righteous either. In Romans 3.10, no one is righteous, not even one. No one is good. No one is just in and of ourselves. And so Habakkuk, he, he needed to be reminded of two things, two facts. God had already used tools to chasten his people. He used War and natural calamities and the preaching of the prophets. I mean, God was already doing everything he could do to reach his own people, and they were rebelling against him. And then number two, Habakkuk needed to remember this, that greater light means greater responsibility. Greater light means greater responsibility. Yes, the Babylonians were wicked, but they were idolaters who did not know God. They didn't know the one true God. That didn't excuse their sins, but it explains their conduct. The Jews who claim to know God are sinning against the very law that they claim to believe. Sin in the life of the believer is far worse than sin in the life of the unbeliever. We often see ourselves in our own light better than we really are. And when God's people deliberately disobey him and sin against a flood of light, which is God, and an ocean of love, which is God, we should not act so innocent. So Habakkuk is asking. So, God, when are you going to put a stop to the Babylonian greed for conquest and, and destruction? And, and in Habakkuk chapter 2, now, Habakkuk sees himself as a watchman and he's up on the wall and he's watching for God's response so he can share it with the people. And God tells Habakkuk in chapter 2 to, to write this down on tablets. In other words, he's saying, I I want this answer to be permanent, and I want it to be plain. Anybody can understand it, and I want it to be public so anyone can see. It's going to be permanent and plain and public. And he tells Habakkuk in verse 3, the last half of verse 3, though it will linger, wait for it, it will certainly come and will not delay. In other words, God is going to describe Babylon now as this puffed-up, arrogant, greedy, given-to-wine, never-at-rest nation. And God is going to bring Babylon down. He's telling her back, don't, don't worry. Babylon is going to be punished as well. They're going to suffer as well. It's coming. And it's because they're corrupt. Their violence, their oppression. It's, it's, it's this never-ending cycle of revenge that we see in the nations. Where one nation rises up and comes and attacks and overpowers and oppresses another. Then that another nation rises up and comes after that nation. They, they all are doing this in this cycle. And God will use nation to punish nation. And just because God might use a corrupt nation, it does not mean that he endorses what they do. They will fall like any nation that acts like them. And so what he does here is God tells him, I got some woes for Babylon. In fact, I got some woes for any nation that's like them. And woe number one and two is he talks about how Babylon had unjust economic practices and were taking advantage of people and the wealthy were building their wealth off of the poor and they were working people with, with uh, no pay. This is economic practices. And then he gives another woe for slave labor, treating humans like animals, threatening them with violence. And then war number four came because they they were abusing alcohol and sexual immorality where he says you're, you're giving each other, getting each other to drunkenness and then because you want to look at naked bodies. Then he tells them war number five, idolatry, which is the engine that drives nations, money power, national security. These are all wrapped up as their false gods that they were worshiping and they were becoming slaves to their own empire. And you see plunder and arrogance and greed and cruelty and drunkenness and idolatry. And what he's saying is most nations will become like Babylon because of their human condition. This is what nations do. One after another after another. They become like Babylon because of their human condition. And God's answer to Habakkuk is an answer that's not just for them, but it's for later generations as well. They will all face God's justice. Every person, everyone. You know, the prophet Obadiah, back in chapter 1, verse 15, he said, the day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you've done it, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return on your own head. (laughs) Obadiah is talking to Edom. And he's saying all nations who act pridefully like Edom, Habakkuk, he's talking about Babylon, all nations that act with pride, pridefully like Babylon, they are going to face God's justice in the same way. They will fall from their prideful heights to their own destruction. Human history is filled with tribes, nations using violence to take what they want, resulting in the death of innocent people. And then you see God using Babylon and Assyria and Edom to show that God cares about the injustices that are happening to people. And he will do something about it. And that ought to encourage you unless you're the nation that's getting punished for the injustices that have occurred. When you look at Habakkuk, his... Complaints, two of them. Why are you allowing it to happen? We need to do something about it. And why would you use a worse nation that's more corrupt than us to punish us? Which leaves us to question whether that in fact is the case. Who's guilty of a greater sin? You kind of have to ask the question what is our response? I know we've been in five or six, maybe six weeks now of sermons through the prophets. And as we go through these prophets, it's, it's been pretty weighty. It's been pretty heavy as we've looked at what God has to say about justice and injustice through his prophets. And yet there's, there's such good things that come from this that apply to us right now. And I just have to ask the question, so what's our response? What should our response be? And I think our response really ought to be Habakkuk's response. Habakkuk's response. Because when you look at Habakkuk's response to God's word as you come into chapter 3, the final chapter of this book of Habakkuk, we're kind of making our way through the whole book here right now. There's some things that Habakkuk does that I think we need to do. And the first thing, and and this is not on the screen, so if you're taking notes, you may just want to write this down yourselves. Uh, In fact, the things that I think you should do aren't even on the screen today, so just write it down. The first one is to humble yourself. Habakkuk humbles himself before God and he understands repentance of sin is needed. And so he humbles himself before God's justice and trusts that in his time he's going to bring down the oppressors in every time and place he's going to. So we got to humble ourselves. The second thing we need to do is we need to pray. We need to pray. Habakkuk prays and he asks God to act now like he has in the past. God moves and and Acts, and as you get into chapter three, it's this prayer. It's, it's it's like an ancient poem the way that it's written, and and it begins with this terrifying appearance of God as in a cloud and fire and earthquake, where He's showing up. In other words, He's got people's attention, and and, and He He compares how God's uh, leading the Israelites out of Egypt, how He punished that nation Egypt to let Israel come through it. How that becomes that picture of the past exodus is now a picture of a future exodus for God's people, and how if if God did plagues and pestilence then, he can do plagues and pestilence in the future. If God rose up a nation, God can rise up a nation again. And he uses the Exodus story from the past to become an, an image of the future Exodus God will perform when he defeats evil. And brings justice, not just to his people, the Israelites, but to all people. How he's going to rescue the oppressed and the innocent. It's even, it's even is giving some foreshadow to the second coming of Christ and what he will do. And so God is going to move. He's going to act. And, and, and he looks back at how God defeated the Egyptians as they went through the sea. And then the sea closed up over the Egyptian army. And, and as he talks about that moment in, in Habakkuk 3.15, he describes it as God trampling the sea and churning the waters with his own horses and chariots against the Egyptian army. And in this chapter, Habakkuk prays for two things, a, a fresh manifestation of God's power, that God's power would move. His power would come and renew them and, and renew their deeds. And then he prays that, that God's mercy would come to that even as they suffer the wrath of God and experience his justice, that he would show mercy to them. And, Have compassion for them. Habakkuk says in verse 13, you you came to deliver your people and to save your anointed one. The ultimate goal of God is going to be salvation, to deliver his people. And and the anointed one, of course, talks about Jesus, that he will preserve a line through which Jesus will come through his people. It's going to lead to Jesus. And as Habakkuk shares all of this about what God is going to do, here's what Habakkuk says here in Habakkuk uh, chapter 3.16. He goes, I heard and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity. He had like, what was happening to him is like what one person said. His knees were fellowshipping with one another. He is weak. He can't move. He's cramped up. He's overwhelmed under the weight of it all. He's about to collapse. And yet, he's having this amazing encounter with God as he's waiting for judgment to come. He's also waiting for God's vindication. God would overcome Babylon one day, then he would renew what was broken. And what happens next is from that place of fear and weakness, And being overwhelmed, not just with the injustices around him, but now the the justice of God coming out against the sin of this world. Habakkuk concludes his book with a faith-filled, hope-filled praise. He realized that peace did not depend on the circumstances that were going on around him, around outward prosperity. Instead, what Habakkuk does beyond humbling himself and praying, is he trusts. He trusts the author. He trusts God. What do you do when nation comes against nation? What do you do when everything's falling apart around you? What do you do when God is bringing his justice in you? You're suffering the consequences and effects of that as well. What do you do? You trust the author. Though the outlook elicits terror, the uplook elicits trust. Habakkuk teaches us that we can persevere through the difficulties in life. We can trust God even when we're missing some answers. He trusts that God loves the world more than he does and he will deal with the evil. And here's what Habakkuk says. I love this. Habakkuk 3, 17-19. He says, though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vine, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no fruit. There, there, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls. In other words, though every supply line has been cut off, and we don't even in this moment have what we need, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The Sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. Wow, those legs that were fellowshipping with one another are now springing like a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. He goes from chapter 1, being in the depths, overwhelmed by it all, to chapter 3, he's now treading on the heights, leaping like a deer on the mountain of God, on a mountaintop, because he sees and he knows that God is sovereign, God is in control, God is ruling, and he is Lord over everything, and you can just trust him. Even when it gets hard, even when things are falling apart, even when you're experiencing wrath, you can trust with what what God is going to produce. So Habakkuk, he will not just endure the hour of distress. He's going to rejoice in the Lord and be joyful. He's going to call God his savior. Even in the midst of destruction and punishment and hardship all around him, the intimate relationship he has with the Lord is bringing joy and peace in his life. And so Habakkuk's book, though it begins with interrogation of God, it's going to end with intercession to God. His worry is transformed into worship. His fear turns to faith. His terror becomes trust. His hang ups are resolved with hope. His anguish melts into adoration. And what begins. With a question mark ends with an exclamation mark. The answer to Habakkuk's question of why is who? Who do you trust in? Who do you go to? Why all the conflict? Why? What's going on? It's resolved with the comprehension of who is in control God is in control. God is doing something, even if it feels like he's not doing something. Even if he's doing patience for us, not wanting us to perish, but all to come to eternal life, as Peter talks about, God is doing something. And what that should say to us is this. God is still writing your story. God is still writing your story. Quit trying to steal the pen. Trust the author. God is still writing your story. Quit trying to steal the pen. Trust the author. What's your response when it seems like the world around you is falling apart? Your community is falling apart. When injustice rears its ugly head everywhere you look, everywhere you go? You humble yourself. You pray. You you trust the author. And finally, you, you live by faith. You live by faith. You're not just saved by grace through faith. You live by faith. Living by faith requires us to be in moments when it doesn't make sense, when we're questioning or doubting what God is doing and we choose to live by faith. In fact, the key to this entire book of Habakkuk is chapter two, verse four. The righteous person will live by faithfulness. Faithfulness to God, no matter what. Faithful, faithful, faith-filled, live by faith. We may not always understand God's ways, but we can trust him. This is why Jesus says in Matthew 25, 23, when one day you stand before God, the words that we most want to hear is when he says, well done, good, and what's the word? Faithful. He does not say... Well done, good and successful, good and famous, good and affluent, good and comfortable, good and acclaimed. He says, no, good and faithful. It's why in Revelation, it says, he who endures to the end will receive the crown of life. It's the one who endures to the very end, trusting God, faith-filled life. And so often, it's so easy for us just to descend in these moments when things are falling apart around us, to just descend into uh, complaint, complaining, grumbling. It's easy to descend into depression and discouragement. It's easy to descend where our questions of why are followed up with feelings that God doesn't care and God's not doing anything and God doesn't love me. And we just start allowing the lies that the evil one is planting into our hearts to come into our minds and nothing could be further from the truth. What I so appreciate about Habakkuk is that he's going into exile. He knows that Babylon is coming. The ferocious wolf, the speedy leopard is coming. He's coming to bring justice and punishment. And yet Habakkuk is now treading on the heights, living by faith, trusting in God, rejoicing in his Savior. He's filled with faith. He's holding on to hope of what God will do. He couldn't rejoice in his circumstances, but he could rejoice in God. He couldn't control what was happening, but he knew God was in control and would work things out. And that seems to me like a pretty good approach. When we face the injustices and the punishments and the hardships that are around us, that we would endure to the end so that Jesus would say of you, well done, good and faithful, faithful, faith filled. Quit trying to steal the pen. Trust the author. And do what you wish the nations would do. Humble yourself before God. Cry out to God. Pray to him. Repent of your sin. Trust him with your future. And live a faith-filled life, trusting in him all the way. And so God, that's what we're praying right now. Jesus, I pray that in our pain and brokenness as people as a community as families as a nation that Jesus we would look to you and cry out to you and instead of always bemoaning a world that does not know you for not doing it Lord I pray first and foremost right here right now every person that's listening in this room and online that Lord we would do this we would humble ourselves. We would seek Your face. We would repent of our sin. We would trust You with our life, and we would live every day surrendered to Your lordship, faithful, faith-filled. The Lord, we would surrender to the the daily practice of surrender, where we make You Lord, Jesus. We rest in the promise you are coming to make things right. And while you work in the affairs of nations and men right now in this world, we know that the day is coming where once and for all, you will bring righteousness and justice. Lord, you will bring us into your kingdom where there will be no more pain or suffering or sin. Lord, there will be no more injustice. And so Jesus, we look forward to that day, thanking you that we have the hope of eternal life because of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on the cross. When we believe in him, When we confess him as Lord, when we repent of our sins. Jesus, when we surrender our lives to you with everything that we have, when we're baptized into Christ, we were raised to new life because of you. Jesus, make us new. Lord, I pray that we would cling to that hope. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. All God's people say. Amen. As you stand to your feet right now, we're going to sing. And if you would like to make a decision today, you would like to pray today, you'd like to become a member of this church. If you would like to volunteer and serve and take your next step of faith, I'd love to visit with you. I'm stepping right out here to Decision Point. I'll meet you there. If you're online, follow the directions on this screen. Let's worship. Let's sing. Thanks for joining us this morning, Northside. Before you go, make sure you check in and let us know you were here. Text the word CHECK to 417-233-1200. If you want to respond to today's service, you can do that online through Decision Point. If you want to know more about baptism or becoming a member, you can request more info at northsidechristianchurch.net slash decision. This is also the place to find out about our life groups, find out what sort of service opportunities there are, or if you just need to get in touch with a minister. And if you're online, you probably use social media too. Make sure you're following along with Northside on our Facebook page, Instagram account, YouTube channel, or Twitter. We are glad that you chose to join us this morning. As we head out for the week, let's make sure we take the love of God with us. Take good care of each other, Northside.